0: Good morning. Good morning, everybody, and let's get underway for another session here at Adelaide Writers Week. Thank you for your attendance. Uh, My name's Tom Wright, and it's my pleasure to host the session here in the Pioneer Women's Memorial Gardens under the maternal stare of this wonderful Olicone statue over our shoulders, always a guiding and warm presence here on the Adelaide floodplains, which are, of course, the traditional lands of the Kaurna people to whom we pay our respects for their custodianship. This morning a wonderful session about language, about power and about performance. And I'm joined by two eminence gris of the Australian stage who I'm sure you'll find most edifying. Uh, I would hope that neither need an introduction but I shall introduce them nonetheless. Sitting next to me, John Bell, actor, director, impresario, educator, uh, a mainstay of the Australian stage for 50 years. He has bestrode the narrow world of the Australian theatre scene like a colossus if you forgive me massacring that quote, John. Uh, Co-founder of Nimrod, founder of Bell Shakespeare, which continues to go from strength to strength. Uh, Recipient of the JC Williamson Award for Lifetime Achievement. Thank you for being in Adelaide, John, and thank you for joining us to talk about your work. Next to John, Jonathan Biggins, actor, director, columnist, writer. 26 Wharf reviews and a mainstay of Australian satire. You've pretty much revolutionised the <laughs> way we see politics. Uh, playwright, author of a play such as Talk and Australia Day, and most recently, I know many of you will have seen here uh, just over the road his extraordinary uh, solo performance, The Gospel According to Paul. Uh, not the Apostle, the Prime Minister. Uh, which was a feature last year in the height of COVID. You managed to get through all of the vagaries, didn't you, Jonathan, and bring the story of Paul Keating and his journey to our stage. Uh, Thank you for being in Adelaide as well. My pleasure. uh, Jonathan Biggins, AKA Paul. The two books that we're featuring this morning, John Bell's book is Some Achieve Greatness. Uh, John has mused over his intimate knowledge of many of the great figures from the Shakespearean canon, and the lessons that we might draw from them about power and about what it actually is to lead, and sometimes even what it is to follow. Um, John, is, isn't it so? And uh, Jonathan's book more uh, applies more recently to this show, the Gospel according to Paul, this purple one, which you'll find. Well, I might actually start with you, Jonathan. How would you describe this book? Because it's not the script of the. Yes.
1: Uh, Well, the book, it's interesting because uh, the the play was originally produced by Joe Dyer, the current um, director of Writers' Week, and the book was commissioned by Louise Adler, the incoming uh, director of Writers' Week, which is probably why I'm here. Uh, And, well, apart from the opportunity for sales. And uh, when when Louise suggested the book, I thought, oh, well, I'll just hand over the script um, because we did have a tradition of publishing play scripts. Um, it had been rejected by several others, I'd have to say. Um, but she very kindly and I thought, oh, well, that's good. Uh, but it was only about 12,000 words, the script, and the book had to be at least 35. So we had to find something else to, um, shall we say, fill in the pages. Uh, so it then became uh, not only that, and she also didn't want it to be as a theatrical script. Uh, she wanted it told in the first person, as, as it is, but she wanted it to be more a piece of prose. So I did that. Uh, and then it just became the rest of the book is about the notion of biography and theatrical biography, what is true in biography, what is not, um, the notion of playing someone who everyone knows very familiar with, uh, and then also the genesis of the character over the many, many years that it's, he's appeared in the Wharf Review, um, and the way, I guess, the approach to the character, and then framing it around that question of leadership, which the director, Arnie Nimi, when he was looking at an, uh, an early draft, he said, why are you here? Why is Keating telling the story? And it is about that. It's about the notion of leadership. So it's an unusual book in that sense.
0: Did you get any feedback from the great man himself about your portrayal of him? Well, Did give yes. you a bit of direction there?
1: Yes, I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think initially he was reluctant to do it because he thought it was going to be a hatchet job. Uh, he was very fond of Keating the musical, which I think he saw seven times, but that was basically a, a love poem to him. Uh, uh, that ended with him winning the 96 election. Um, so he was very fond of that, but he was a bit wary, and he's a very private person, and very wary of uh, any intrusion into his private life. But then we were doing the Wharf Review, and um, Drew had to withdraw, so Pauline Hansen monologue had to be replaced by another one. So I very quickly wrote a Keating monologue about this notion of leadership, and someone persuaded Keating to come and see it, and the audience used to go ballistic as soon as you are pretending to be Paul Keating. So he was sitting there in his little cap and his cardigan, um, incognito, uh, and um, he obviously saw the audience all going nuts, and he went, oh, still got it. And um, (laughs) and so he then gave us the imprimatur to do the play, and then... uh, when he um, saw it, he said, uh, thank you for being so generous. Um, but it was better than his first comment when he saw the first time I was doing him. He came back and he said, look, you know, I don't know why you bother doing me. You'll,
0: uh, you'll, you'll have to speak up like Paul. Don't mumble into the microphone. I, and don't, everybody well, got
1: that. I don't know if you've ever spoken to Paul Keaton, but you can't hear him even if you're a foot away from him. <laughs> but he said, I, I don't know why you'd bother doing me, but I'll tell you this for nothing. I would have been wearing a better suit. <laughs> and um, I, told, I told Casey Bonetta, who wrote Keating the Musical, that story, and they had spent the six and a half thousand dollars for a Xenia suit. We couldn't afford that. And Casey said, he said exactly the same thing to us.
0: Well, um, Paul's wardrobe is considerable. He could have made the generous offer. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite the same size. Ah, of course. Uh, John, uh, since we're talking about Paul, you, you've, you've um, come across the man himself as well, haven't you? You've, you've uh, seen the exercise of power up close. You, tell us about your experience with Mr Keating.
2: Um, again, very l- low profile, um, not being too um, outspoken. Uh, I did say to him once, I'd had a few drinks, we were at a little party, and I was very curious about his Catholic background and uh, how that's that interfered, or not he interfered with, but uh, fed into his politics, and so I did say to him, uh, you know, um, all that Catholic doctrine and stuff, do you actually believe all that? And he, he sort of just dodged a bit and said, well, I'm a bit of a romantic. Oh, that was a very elegant way of answering, of not answering my question. <laughs> If I had to compare him to a Shakespeare character, I'd say he's a bit of a mix of Petruchio, who uh, is a bit of a buccaneer and knows what he wants and uh, is determined to get it and doesn't mind a few fisticuffs along the way, with a dash of the melancholy Jaques, who has a rather morbid view of life and a satirical bent. And I'd say, if anything, hitting is a combination of those characteristics, uh, a very, I find him a very enigmatic character, but uh, therefore a very
0: attractive and interesting one. But he's unusual in the Australian uh, stage, so to speak, isn't he? Because you feel there's a self-consciousness about the performance. And some of our more recent prime ministers, uh, Jonathan as a satirist, they're sort of almost harder to do because they haven't even risen to the stage of actually being aware that they're performing. They're resolutely sort of mediocre. Mm. Whereas there's that sort of... Keating is both... the Keating loathe him or like him. He he was aware that he was actually putting on a show. just tell... This will actually segue back into John. Tell us about what it is... To, who's easy to play on stage? Who's easy to represent and who's hard? Me? Yeah. Oh, um, well, that's, that's true. And I think,
1: I mean, part of the problem for Modern Political, they're all being advised to be no more special or no more extraordinary than anyone else. And the notion that Scott Morrison tries to engender, and they all have, that I'm just the bloke next door. I don't want to be led by the bloke next door. <laughs> No offence to the bloke next door, who actually a uh, neighbour is in the audience, but um, <laughs> you know, y- you don't go to the dentist and say, "Would you fill my teeth?" And he'd said, "Ah, oh, look, I, I'm not a dentist, but I'm as good as the bloke next door. But I'll give it a, <laughs> I'll give it a red hot go." Um, you, you want someone extraordinary. And the good thing about Keating was, I mean, people say he's arrogant, but he thought, oh, "Well, I am extraordinary." And I don't care who knows it. <laughs> uh, and in fact, he made sure that everyone knew it. Um, because it's quite unusual, he left school at 14. He never went to university, but he's obviously an autodidact of some sort. I think he might be a little on the spectrum. That's my personal parent feeling. Um, because he, for example, when he was in New South Wales Labor Youth, he compiled his own cross-referenced card indexes of every member of every branch, their voting records, Um, and where they stood on every issue. So when he went to state conference, he would be able to talk to any person, know who they are, and know exactly what their history was. So he had control of the place within, Mm. you know, a year. Um, And when he was uh, in the Whitlam government, he became friendly with Rex Connor, who was the Minister for Minerals and Energy, and Keating went and visited the boardroom of every mining company in Australia. Uh, When he first arrived in Canberra as the youngest MP, he found the guy who was the head of the the, the public servant, who was the head of the Department of Cabinet, found him at the the Commonwealth Club, introduced himself, and he was the first backbencher who had ever said hello to this guy. So I think it's that kind of attention to detail and that amount of work, that was the first thing that was required. And... On that question of um, you know whether you want to be ordinary or extraordinary, we have to remember that these people, they didn't have to deal with the social media age. Mm-hmm. So most politicians now are not really thinking much further ahead, not even a week. They're thinking till lunchtime. Um, and they, they talk about winning the morning, winning the afternoon. Uh, whereas Keating would think, well, you've got one stab at it, Win the next ten years, mm. uh, and I think that's been the problem. Plus, also, not only are all politicians now either lawyers or, um, you know, with not much experience of the real world, uh, most of their advisers are ex-media. Um, so everything is framed in this notion of how it's going to be received, whereas Keating didn't care how it was received. And he also had the benefit of being in the Hawke Ministry and having a Prime Minister who recognised the talents of his very extraordinary cabinet and let them get on with it. Um, so, you know, Hawke got all the political capital, Keating spent it. And I think that was a very um, useful combination. Uh, and then when he was Prime Minister, he just sort of carried on where he left off. But I think that melancholia, I mean, in Don Watson's book, which Keating not fond of, um, but Don was there, um, and that, that that melancholia played very strongly into uh, when he became prime minister, because it was such a bruising experience to get to be prime minister. It took him many months to recover. And I think um, politicians at that level, when they spend that much time and they invest that much energy, it kind of breaks them in some ways for life, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think Keating has carried that. He's certainly carried it in his health, um, and you know, tinnitus and various things that happened when you know, they would do a budget, they'd be locked in the same room for 10 hours a day for 10 weeks, and, and people smoking constantly, um, and he told a great story, they had to change the colour of the paper, because the glare from the white was making their eyes go funny, so all the budget papers were in green, um, and that kind of dedication I think we sometimes um, overlook or don't give them due credit for.
2: I think uh, compared to many politicians today, he wasn't he didn't see himself as a performer. He hated the idea of performing. And he was much better when he was on his feet ad-libbing. He was a, a dead shot with the, the one-liner and the ad-lib. But he hated uh, prepared speeches. In fact, uh, before uh, the, one of the last elections, Don Watson asked me to go down to the lodge for a day and give Keating a, a bit of a vo- voice class, um, which he absolutely hated, of course. Uh, He didn't like doing it, but uh, we were locked in the same room and I said, look, uh, just read me one of your speeches and uh, I'll give you a bit of feedback. And he was kind of shy and bent over and mumbling. I said, look, you've got to stand up straight. He said, the trouble is the lecterns are always too low and I have to bend over to look at the lectern. I said, well, get yourself an adjustable lectern. I bet George Bush has got one, you know. Um, But he was very, he he said, it's all bullshit. Uh, Prepared speeches and, uh, you know, giving oratory. He said, I just want to talk from the heart and not be prepared. But in a sense, that uh, isn't good enough. If you're going to be a public figure, you've got to prepare. And I think, uh, as I say, his prepared speeches are always a bit, um, a bit boring compared to his when he was on his feet in in the in the house, ad-libbing and firing off shots. That's when he was at his best. Yeah, I mean, if you look
1: at the Redfern speech, it's delivered terribly. Um, but it's, it's what it, what he was saying that was important. But you know, he, he was literally over the lectern like that. Mm. We did the dispossessing, we did the... And you think, come on, give it a bit of zip.
0: Yeah. yeah. But, um... No, yeah. John, that business of what it is to give, as Jonathan's just said, a bit of zip is actually part of the business of leadership, isn't it? It's not just about being a moral figure. You also have to inspire and seize the moment. I was intrigued, in early in your book you talk about one of the qualities that we look for in our leaders is the ones who know how to seize the day, but also the ones who know when to wait. Knowing how to pick your moment is a key art. Uh, but it also struck me is that many of the, the kings that you speak about in your book, from, from Henry V through to the more mythic ones like Macbeth or Lear, they're often given warnings and they're given portents of what's to come. So there's a third characteristic, isn't there? There's seizing the day and there's waiting for your opportunity, but there's also fate, the idea that some things are fated and they're going to happen inexorably whether you like it or not. Well, what, what are some of the lessons that you're seeking to sort of extrapolate in this book about um, what, what is missing from contemporary leadership and what's, um, what's, what you see as present?
2: Well, I think listening, listening to the experts is one very important uh, aspect of leadership. Um, not to try and go, go it alone, but to collaborate, to uh, seek advice, especially from people who know better than you do whether it's about science or finance or uh, what's happening uh, on the international scene. And uh, the leaders who, who fail uh, in Shakespeare's world are those who, who don't listen. Uh, Caesar is given uh, many warnings, not just from the soothsayer saying beware the Ides of March, but his wife actually warns him in no uncertain terms about portents and omens. I think she's doing this as a, you know, as a way of getting to his weak point, which is su- his superstition. I think she's cooking up all this evidence to try and dissuade him. And she actually turns him around and he says, OK, well, if that's, the, uh, if that's your, your um, prognosis, then I, I won't go to the Capitol today. It just takes one little thing. One guy comes in and says, well, if you do come, we'll offer you a crown. And that turns him around on the spot. And OK, well, I'm going then. Bug of the portents and uh, the omens. Uh, this is what I want. So it's, um, it's uh, his ambition and his impatience over, uh, overrides uh, good, sensible, sound advice from people who know or intuit what is about to happen. And it's just, I find it astonishing, I guess we all do, that uh, this invasion of Ukraine, that people say, oh, we didn't see it coming. All these guys who have paid heaps of money, whether they're diplomats or, you know, ministers and, and boffins of all sorts, didn't see it coming. And it's been, you know, I think if you look at it now, so obvious from years and years of build-up and analyzing this man and his character and his ambitions and his wants, that we can still say we didn't see it coming. I find uh, it's not just uh, the, the protagonists who are uh, blameworthy, it's all of us for, well, for not intuiting what was about to come.
0: Well, you bring up this modern-day self-appointed Tsar. Do you see an, a Shakespearean equivalent to Mr. Putin? Do oh, you?
2: certainly. Richard III is a dead ringer for, <laughs> Al, for Mr. Putin. <laughs> Uh, a person with no empathy, a sociopath, a psychopath, uh, unlimited ambition, um, careless of any destruction he may wreak, uh, and acting out of resentment. Richard III acts out of resentment that he's always been despised because of his deformity uh, and and condescended to. Uh, Putin talks about when he was a taxi driver in Berlin after the war and the resentment he felt about the collapse of the Soviet empire. And uh, this trying to claw it all back um, and restore it to what it was, with himself, of course, as the Tsar in no uncertain terms. Uh, it's exactly uh, Richard III's motivation. And the the uh, policies involved of uh, fake news, uh, getting rid of all the opposition, uh, assassinating people who get in your way, this is uh, Putin's playbook. And uh, it's not... It's not uh, so, uh, no surprise that he sees himself as the new Tsar. If you look at uh, Im- images or footage of him entering uh, a room, uh, everyone stands behind barriers and the big golden doors are flung open by soldiers in Tolstoyan costume, and he strides down the red carpet like the Tsar. Uh, it's, 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 it's so obvious that this is uh, his, his life's path, his ambition, and uh, the motivation is, is that of Richard III. Although I could throw in a bit of Henry V, who is a, an ideal leader in some ways, but also an aggressor, when he says to his bishops, I want to reclaim parts of France which are, actually belong to England. Go and find me some ancient documents that prove that that part of France is actually English territory. If you do find it, um, the sin be on your head for, if anything starts as follows. If you don't find it, I'll take away half your church property so uh, you know the bishops are in double bind naturally they're quite pragmatic enough to find him very good reason to uh, conduct a war of aggression
0: we've well, mm. uh, by your analysis if mr putin is richard iii should we be looking for a bosworth field in ukraine uh, <coughs> or a car park in leicester <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed uh, well mythologies come full circle don't they john is like it, it That's, of course, one of the things that Mr. Putin is riding on. He's riding on a wave of Russian nationalism as well. To a certain extent, he's made it, but he's also riding it. And this capacity that you talk about with the Shakespearean characters to evoke the power of the people, Henry V being a classic case in point, but Henry V's father, likewise, has a. a, all those plays are full of evocations of land, of landscape, of people, of folklore. Um, Politicians have to harness Social forces. They're not just individuals locked in time, are they?
2: No, um, I, I think uh, Henry IV makes the mistake of being too low profile. He's, uh, he thinks that um, his position enough entitles him to be what he is and to play this role. He doesn't realize you've got to be a populist to some extent. Uh, and that's where Henry V, of course, is quite Machiavellian in, in mapping out his life course. I'll lead a wild and riotous youth, then I'll have a stunning transformation into a, an ideal monarch, then I'll have, uh, lead a war of aggression on foreign soil that will get the whole country behind me, distract attention from uh, domestic problems, uh, unite all these different parts of Britain into one, and make me a national hero and an icon, and that's what he sets out to do, and that's what he does.
1: And you've just described um, George W. Bush as well. That almost exact description, the dissolute youth, the transformation, the foreign war, um, so many of them. But I mean, well, Putin and, does and have, the father,
0: uh, the father was king as well, of well, course. Well, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and yes, use your family to um, silence any dissent. So Jeb Bush overthrows the decision to, um, you know, appeal Florida on Gore's behalf. Um, but one plus side about Putin is, and I didn't know this, but his favourite song is Mamma Mia. <laughs>
0: Mm. Yes, that might be the Barry Kosky moment in the tragedy. <laughs> yeah. uh, that might be where the four dancing yeah. boys come on. But, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah, but they'd be singing Cole Porter in their underpants, yeah. wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, how amazing
2: that people like Trump, for instance, think of themselves as uh, beginnings of a dynasty, uh, that you would think that your son or your daughter is the next in line for the job of president.
0: Uh, well, yeah. How can they even conceive that that would be uh, a likely outcome? And yet, one of the themes that this Writers Week has been addressing—not just this week, but all for the last few years—is the way in which power does feel like it's contained within cabals and select groups. And we're increasingly seeing that. And we are seeing family dynasties in Canberra, aren't we? Where there's multi-generational um, uh, politicians, and certainly a city like Adelaide doesn't—you only need to mention a name like Downer, and it goes right back into the last century. we're not immune yeah, of it. Came to a end,
1: didn't it? No, I, I it guess came it to an abrupt
0: end, the Downer dynasty. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not over yet. Not <laughs> over <laughs> yet, no. no. no, no but, I, I but, guess but Butler or any of these other yeah, names, I'm not picking sides here. I, I guess mm. they're
2: taking the cues, though, from the media. If, if there's a, a Packer dynasty or a Murdoch dynasty, then let, let, them, let that apply to, to us politicians as well.
0: Well, I I know you don't actually mention that in your book, John, but you might care to today. I mean, the story of James Packer does have extraordinarily Shakespearean connotations, doesn't it? Mm. What it is to be the privileged son, what it is the the uneasy, what it is to inherit a crown in so many senses of the word. Uh, It feels an extraordinary sort of story, the the Packer story, and sometimes these media families are the best examples of your your principles and points, aren't they? Yeah. Uh,
2: You talk about... Putin's downfall—what that will be, when it will come—who uh, can who can say what it what, what it's going to be? But uh, one should take note that, uh, as in life as we know it, and various um, dictators in recent times, they do, do all tend to end up badly, in very uh, you know, uh, unceremonially, Whether it's uh, Saddam Hussein or Ceausescu. You know, um, uh, there's always a, a rather bitter, grubby end to their reigns. So I'm not wishing, um, you know, ill on anybody, but I think Putin had better just watch, you know, well, watch his trajectory.
0: You, you make that remarkable point about, you know, Richard III dying in a ditch, and it just yeah. straight away evokes Colonel Gaddafi being dragged from a drain, and mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein found in a hole in a, in a drainage culvert. It's... Uh, Shakespeare has an uncanny ability to anticipate, reflect, and refract reality. It's not fantasy, is it? It's, there's an astonishing um, chapter in this about charisma, by the way, which sort of... It's not all negative, necessarily. Sometimes politicians can uh, actually have a manifest destiny, and this chapter on charisma reminded me of Paul Keating and the well, way I in think, which he used it, too. I mean, I
1: think Donald Trump was very charismatic. I think Donald Trump's a great entertainer. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and if he was doing a show at Vegas, I'd probably go and see it. <laughs> but I'd just rather he wasn't running, um, you know, the United States. But he had a, an enormous amount of charisma. He's a great public speaker in terms of entertaining a crowd. I mean, well, that, what do we his mean his
0: by charisma crowd? here, John? Because your definition is slightly more... John, you... Uh, appeal, I'm uh, yeah. about a
2: mass appeal, I suppose. I mean, Hitler had it. Um, uh, he was as plain as a doorknob, but look at the adulation on the faces of the crowds around him and the adulation of his, uh, of his generals and so on. Uh, he must have had some extraordinary charisma. Uh, it's not always a good thing. Uh, Napoleon had charisma, charisma. Uh, Mussolini had charisma, for this, you know, and, and uh, Jonathan says Trump has that to a certain audience, not to me he's got, he's got no charisma at all, but uh, to millions he has. So it's, I think that charisma, real charisma is something that is bestowed on you rather than something you manufacture.
0: But you use different examples, don't you? Charisma can work in a positive fashion and the kind of way... It can, ..or it can be manufactured, can't it? Yep. The Mark Antony speech, uh, you, there's a great detailed analysis of the play Julius Caesar. It just un- opens up like a ever-opening flower. But the Mark Antony speech sort of is, a, in many ways, a dissection of the constructed nature of what it is to be charismatic. And Caesar... I mean, Brutus can't see it. He doesn't understand what's happening until it's too late.
2: Yes, I mean, Antony's famous speech is an absolute textbook lesson in uh, manipulation um about um uh, creating false pathos telling a false narrative offering bribery to the to the to the crowd uh, you know uh, turning their turning them around with fake news it, it's a, a masterful speech and antony is a very good example of a charismatic leader uh, with tremendous charm and uh, you know attributes who gets to the top and then can't hold onto the job he, he pisses it all away and uh becomes you know, corrupt and lazy and complacent. And that's uh, the downfall of many a leader, I think. It's one thing to get to the top, hanging on to the job, staying there, maintaining your energy, your integrity, your enthusiasm, your passion, uh, is a, a, a bigger challenge. And many leaders fail on that uh, level, I think. Complacency, in the case of Julius Caesar, is a prime example of someone who stops listening, thinks that uh, I'm here by, you know, Uh, I deserve to be
0: here, I'm staying here, and all I want is more. Uh, You can't do that. What does Shakespeare tell us about those leaders who can learn from being in power? What's an example in in the Shakespearean works of a leader who actually grows in the job?
2: Um, Well, um, I think back to Henry V again, who, as I say, in some some ways is an ideal leader. Shakespeare doesn't dodge the issue of his Machiavellian uh, side and his manipulation. But he knows how to listen, he knows how to seek advice. Uh, He plays low low status, he plays being the common man, I'm just one of you, I'm just like you. Um, And uh, he learns how to speak the language of the people uh, from early on, that's his game plan, to know who are these people I'm supposed to rule, what do they want, who are they, where do they live, um, how do I lead them in a way that is positive, and uh, and, uh, maintains a link between me and them. Uh, the night before the famous Battle of Agincourt, he walks around the camp talking to the soldiers, listening to what their, their fears and apprehensions are, reassuring them, whereas other generals like sit in their tent and have a stiff whiskey and play cards, uh, he doesn't do that. He really knows what the common touch is all about. And I think a lot of politicians either on the way up or once they get to, to uh, positions of power, lose that, that common touch and begin to live in what we call the, the Canberra bubble.
1: Um, well, I mean, someone like Bob Hawke, he had an enormous charisma yeah. um, and a lot of talent, and he was also able to delegate. But even then, by the time he'd reached, you know, he couldn't let go. You were talking about, you know, knowing when to wait for your moment, and some people wait too long. Peter Costello, classic example. Um, but Hawke just wouldn't let go. And I think part of the, in terms of uh, uh, securing a legacy as a leader, is knowing when to stop and there are very few politicians who bail out at exactly the right time. I mean, Peter Beattie was one, Steve Brax, probably another one. Um, but it's hard to think... more well, Bob Carr probably is Premier of New South Wales. Um, but on a, on a federal level, look at Howard. He lost his seat, um, and he'd been there for so long. And I think that's, that's um, something that they also lose sight of as well, is, is that once they get there, they just cannot let it go. Uh, but maybe this
0: is my point about fate as a Shakespearean theme, is that maybe the objective power is to hold on to it until it's taken from you. Um, the idea of the noble exit is one thing, but it's also maybe once you're on that, the, you're in so... What, what's the quote from Macbeth, uh, John, where you're in so far that, you know, it's, it's easy just to keep going yeah, <laughs> rather than right. to try and come back? An yeah. extraordinary sort of... Uh, I can understand why once you're trapped in, in that office, I mean, Putin must know that he's n- not going to leave the Kremlin except one way, surely. He, but he, uh, there's well, not really he'll, be, uh, he'll be offered
1: some sort of, you know, discreet exit. He's got—he's the richest man in the world, so I'm sure he'll be, you know, go off to his dacha or whatever it is <laughs> and
0: live a, a, a quiet life. Mm. Well, it, that would be—that would be breaking the mould, wouldn't it? I don't know quite. It's not like there's going to be a, a, a villa in the shores of Lake Como for the rest of your life. Right. But
1: all the people who we've been talking about who have been like, you know, Gaddafi and Hussein, they were having, well, they were literally bombed into submission. I mean, they were invaded. Uh, no one's invading Russia at the moment, so there's a, the possibility that he will be able to to um, get out in that way. But the other thing is interesting is that, um, you know, you talk about Richard III and Shakespeare and this notion of Shakespeare writing about these people. Historically, it's probably true that, Richard III was nothing like that um, in in real life. Uh, And and this gets back to that comment I made earlier about the funny thing about playing Keating is that because you look and sound like him, people think you're telling the absolute truth. Um, And you kind of are, but not really. I mean, all biography is, is constructed in some way. Any biographer has an attitude about the person they're writing the life of. Um, Autobiography is probably the least trustworthy Um, and because, what was it, George Orwell said anyone who, you know, if they write a good story of their life is lying because life is nothing but a series of defeats. Um, Cheerful person, George Orwell, but um, (laughs) it's funny when you assume the character of the person and then tell their story, people go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But even Paul Keating came up and said, how did you know that? How did you know that detail? I said, "Well, it's in the book." You said it to Kerry O'Brien, and and he's kind of forgotten element. Well, he remembered, but he didn't know that certain parts of that story were out there in the public domain. So I think it's interesting. It's as much Shakespeare's uh, guess of what good leadership is as oh, yeah. much as anything. His, his
2: plays aren't really history. They are constructs to teach lessons, to show to show patterns uh, of behaviour. Um, they're not really history all that interested in the, the actual historical events. But your point about knowing when to exit, I think is a really important one for any leader. I think King Lee is the, the greatest example of yeah. someone who doesn't know when to step down. Uh, an octogenarian who's really losing it living in his own sort of fantasy. Uh, not only not knowing when to step down, but having, having, not having a good succession plan. And that's terribly important for any leader, I think, to have a succession plan in place, knowing who you're passing the baton to. And when, uh, Liam makes the most disastrous choice of cutting his kingdom into three and, you know, uh, parceling it out, and
0: uh, and still hoping to hold on to all the perks of office without responsibility. But you have to be careful with a succession plan, don't you? Because one man's succession plan is another man's curability agreement, and you're sort of right. asking for... Almost giving, putting the knife into someone's hand. And you sort of... I, you wonder about Mr Lavru or Mr Medvedev or someone else in the Kremlin. I mean, yeah. uneasy lies the head, yeah, so, yeah. so to speak. Is. On one level, it's knowing when to exit. On another level, you, you can also just say, leave it up to fate. I'm, I'm, I'll hold on to power for as long as I can, but the second I legitimise someone as my successor, they're going to start plotting. Well, that's the one reason, I guess, why
2: Elizabeth I wouldn't name a successor. Uh, She was determined to hang on to power as long as she she could. Uh, She didn't want to marry. She didn't want any having any man telling her what to do or to take precedence. So she was determined to remain uh, single. uh, Whether virgin or not, we don't know, but uh, that's the the title she assumed. Um, But uh, that caused some concern and chaos, which is one reason I think Shakespeare's so interested in the idea of leadership. Here's the, the monarch, refusing to name a successor, obviously in her last months or days, and everyone terrified, well, who will fill the gap? Uh, will there be another civil war, people fighting over the crown, or will some foreigner, uh, God help us, a Spaniard or a Frenchman step in and, and make the claim? Uh, and people were living in very uncertain, apprehensive times, which and I you think- You can feel it in the plays, can't you? Can absolutely, so mm. that uh,
0: succession and good planning uh, is absolutely crucial to staying on. Well, legitimacy government. is a big theme, isn't it? Am I le- yeah. am I legitimate or am I Ill- illegitimate? As uh, you were talking about Lear before, you can feel that sort of Edgar Edmund dichotomy plays out in power as well, doesn't it? If you're not legitimate, you have to fight all the harder, and that brings us full circle back to your point about Paul Keating feeling like he was an outsider who, under Jack Lang's tutelage, had to sort of. You describe it quite acutely. He knew that he was, so to speak, God stands up for bastards, I'm one of the bastards and I'm going to have to play the game hard, hence the card index. Mm. Um, John, I'm just intrigued just to pick up on... uh, It's only just occurred to me is that, to a certain extent... Shakespeare illustrates the way power works, but to what extent has it become, in the English-speaking world at least, something of an instruction manual? Would it have been possible for Winston Churchill to make his wartime speeches without the rhetorical flourishes of Henry V? To what extent does this actually become the script for history, mythological as it might be, and Richard III being a completely unrealistic portrait? Um, To a certain extent, Shakespeare has written the script for us and we sort of fall or rise according to it. I think that's right.
2: I think it has uh, become part of the the language. Even if people have never even read or seen the plays, the the language has passed into our our DNA, if you like. Um, I think Obama um, was uh, inspired by Shakespeare. Kennedy certainly was, and had very Shakespearean rhetoric. Ask not what I can do for my country, what, 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 the, what I can do for my country. Uh, that's a very Shakespearean kind of uh, construction. Rhetorical flourish. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, Nelson yeah. Mandela had a copy of Shakespeare in his cell, disguised as a Bible so that it wouldn't be taken away from him. Um, uh, Churchill, certainly. Churchill went backstage to Lawrence Olivia when he was playing Henry V and said, remember, you are England. So uh, it's very much conscious of uh, that kind of rhetoric being part of our national language. And I think the other interesting thing is that um, Shakespeare's writings necessarily about male power, obviously, because apart from Elizabeth, um, most women didn't have much purchase when it came to power. Uh, English women had a a much freer life than continental women. Nevertheless, uh, there's an awareness in Shakespeare. I think that there's this whole um, female um, uh, audience that wasn't being heard. And so he tries to give women power in his plays early on by having them disguise themselves as men. And that way they can get into male territory and outsmart the guys and you know, take the cake as Portia does in Merchant of Venice. Um, and it's only towards the later plays he starts to find a way of giving women the ultimate authority, whether it's Cleopatra or Hermione in The Winter's Tale, for instance, uh, or uh, Desdemona, Amelia, become the, the moral centers of the play. And the men are shown to be wanting and and weak and lacking integrity compared to the women who have this uh, real moral superiority. And I think uh, if it hadn't been for Elizabeth the first, he might not have been able to get to that point of um, women, um, you know, being in positions of power and having that authority.
0: And the history plays have it as well, of course. So there's Roles like Margaret often get overlooked in the in the Henrys, are extraordinary survivors, examples of a different form of leadership. Sometimes just surviving in the palace is an art in itself, isn't it? I think it?
2: that's right. I, I think for most women in Shakespeare's plays, you can you can either um, suffer quietly and go along with the status quo, or you can become like the guys and playing it just as rough and dirty as they do, or you can rise above them and become the, um, the superior moral um, mm. exemplar, which is where he gets by the end of his career, I think.
0: not sure that ScoMo is following the Shakespearean model. <laughs> um, you I'm, indulge him by using the nickname, Jonathan, you realise <laughs> that, that. That's what he wants you to do. Uh, well, that's uh, true. Mr Morrison, I call Mr him. Morrison, mm. sorry. He who must not
1: be named. <laughs> um, it's funny, we once did a sketch about Murdoch. You were talking about dynasties and the power, and obviously you know, in the contemporary world, much more of the power has been devolved into the private sector. Um, we did a sketch with him as uh, Lear. Uh, and I think um, Cordelia was, uh, was it Rebecca Brooks? Yes. Uh, of the red, red week, flaming yes, hair. yes. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I mean, you know, and Succession, the television series, it's all loosely based on the Murdochs and that whole notion of power dynasties. But in terms of oratory, no one really in the contemporary parliaments anywhere in this country use it very effectively. I think um, it's despised by too many people. Um, well, it's this notion of you mustn't be seen to be anything but ordinary. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you have to just use language that everyone supposedly can understand, but why was it that in the past people were quite happy to have leaders who were orators? What, what, what is the suspicion with it now? I don't understand it.
0: Well, maybe that, that can lead us into that question, Jonathan. You've been doing the Wharf Review for some time now. When it started, it was the Howard years, wasn't it, Mr. Howard? Yes, it was. <laughs> for
1: many years, it was the Howard years, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: um, so you've been, you've, you've been doing these satirical pieces of theatre under five prime ministers, you know, mm-hmm. quite possibly soon six. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's every likelihood. What have you noticed over the course of time about... Have they got easier to portray... Have the narratives changed? No, is they're it's... becoming blander,
1: that's for sure, and they are difficult. I mean, part um, of the problem I want you is I to, to talk about who's well,
0: impossible to do, that's Who's impossible
1: of... to do? Well, you know, ScoMo's pretty hard to do. How do Mr. you do Josh Frydenberg? <laughs> D- Peter Dutton's very easy to do. That's just a, a bald cap and a stocking over your head. <laughs> um, Clive Palmer's easy to do. Jackie Lambie, she's always good. Um, we have a, Mandy Bishop's doing a, a great Jackie Lambie in this year's review. Um, And there are more women for her to do now, so she can do um, Michaelia Michaelia, Cash, she's another fantastic person to do. Um, But other than that...
0: But Barnaby was proving elusive. Mr Abbott proved hard for you, didn't he, just to to capture it? I've done Mr Abbott in
1: many different ways. (laughs) Speedos and pasties and two fans. Um, (laughs) uh, Normally the addition of a life-saving cap would help. Um, And the years and, uh, you know, that... uh, that thing he did, um, <laughs> Donald Trump's fairly easy. That that uh, that that's easy. Just a, a fat suit and a wig, and um, attitude. <laughs>
0: But you uh, used to get more statements of value, didn't you? Both Mr. Howard and Mr. Keating were... You were clear about where their value base was, and so you could start from there. It could be a holistic portrait, whereas some of the portraits now, because, as you said before, you don't know quite what's underneath, they just seem to have come out of nowhere, these political animals. Well, so yes, like. all I mean... All you mean, can do is imitate, you know?
1: To <laughs> someone who has a career in marketing, it's fairly obvious where Scott Morrison's priorities lie. I did... We did have a sketch that didn't get used, I had uh, a sketch about Jesus has returned for the second coming and he's in two weeks quarantine in the (laughs) Novotel and um, ScoMo disguised himself as a food courier so he could get in (laughs) and and try and recruit Jesus um, for some... You know, electoral advice and marketing support, um, <laughs> playing to his base. Well, but he also wanted to stack some it.
0: branches, didn't he? Sort of get Jesus's help in stacking the branches. He's having some problems getting his candidates up in New South Wales. Well,
1: I mean, Craig Kelly. is, is Scott Morrison put him back in the seat. The um, the local branch voted not to pre-select Mr. Kelly. Uh, Morrison intervened personally, um, and then Craig Kelly got in, back in the seat, uh, and then removed from the Liberal Party, and is now running in the same seat for the United Australia Party. I mean, how how can you satirise that? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And again, what what have they spent, $38 million, the United Australia Party? And their likelihood of getting anyone elected is almost zero. Mm. But you wonder, again, that must just be... I mean, you could understand the strategy at the last election, and that was a very useful display of power, being used not to further your own political ambitions, but to, make, to squash the opponent. Mm. Um, and Labor effectively lost the election because the vote was so, so strongly in Queensland by the United Australia Party. Uh, and that cost them a lot of money too. It, Clive Palmer has quite happily said, I will make this the most expensive campaign that anyone has ever had, even though he has little or no chance of success. Um, but that's the kind of bizarre world that politics is now. Uh, and as you say, I mean, Howard and Keating, no matter what you thought of Howard, at least he did what he said he was going to do, and he acted very strongly from a firm, personal set of beliefs. I mean, he was very cunning and um, Machiavellian at the same time, uh, and he was quite clever in his use of power inasmuch as he sent his lieutenants out to do the dirty work, so he didn't wear any of the, uh, any of the dirt. Um, and I think... I think it'd be good if we moved away from this focus on the leader uh, and and didn't have presidential style elections. Actually, look at the team, and I'm hoping that this election there there might be some more, you know, let's see who's in the cabinet, let's see who's going to be on the front bench, Mm. Uh, and don't just do this ridiculous notion of focusing on the one person at the head. Um, But that's the way, again, this sort of simplification that people can only take in one thing at a time and only focus on one person. I don't think it's true, but that's what we've been led to believe is true.
0: Well, it's also a product of the times, isn't it? By the way, we'll have questions in a moment, so if you'd like to ask a question of John or Jonathan, by all means, feel free to come up and queue at the microphone. Um, if you are going to make a statement, please put a question mark at the end of it so we know when you're finished. Um, just on, it's The times produce that, don't they? We're In a time of bushfires, in a time of floods, and in a time of pandemic, we do actually require leadership. Uh, in some description, and sure, it might be about teams, but we do look for someone who can articulate and sum up the vision. So maybe while we're waiting for some questions, John, we might just, your last chapter is quite inspiring because you talk about integrity. In the Shakespearean world, what is integrity? What, what actually, how do we define it?
2: Uh, I think it's um, having very, very strong principles uh, and, and sticking to them, despite uh, whatever uh, opposition you run into, um, it's having empathy, understanding what others need and not just thinking of what you need. Um, it's, it's being trustworthy and I think that's what most of us are anxious about when it comes to um, voting and politics and say, can you really trust these people? Um, look at their record. Uh, do I want to put my, my life in their hands for the next four years? Uh, I think your integrity has to be earned and uh, once you lose it, it's almost impossible to claw it back, I think.
1: Um, you yeah, Gladys Berejiklian is a, an interesting case. Yeah. Um, you know, she was a, wasn't that popular as a premier, but then during the COVID crisis, for those um, who followed her story, she became the face of competent government management managing this crisis. Uh, so I think a lot of people were very shocked when she resigned she wasn't forced to resign, but she knew. And then the more the things come out, you think, my God, was, was there's something completely different going on. But I think she was also blinded. She didn't really think that what she was doing was wrong. Um, and it, 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 I, I found it extraordinary, but at the same time, a lot of people were reluctant to lose her because she'd been a good leader mm. um, through difficult times and they didn't want to accept the fact that she'd been inherently corrupt the whole time along, but which, you know, if you look at it in plain terms, she was. Um, but again, I think she
0: had lost sight of it. But this is the Shakespearean quandary, isn't it, with fatal flaws, as you can be both competent and corrupt. The, the two don't negate each other as the human no, they beings don't are... No, not necessarily.
1: Complicated. And, and in the past, we've forgiven people a lot of sins. I mean, Bob Hawke... You know, he just happily admitted
0: his failings, and it just seemed to improve his popularity even more. Um, so I think. But when when you're fill, when you're filling your coffers, Putin-style, at the public expense, that's when well, we're. That's to, very different. But we no have one's to draw accusing
1: him. No, I mean no. Gladys didn't do it for personal gain, no. um, but I, I also think the pressures we put. You know, she didn't have a day off for like ten months, um, and I think the pressures that politicians are put under, and the work pressure, and the and the relentless. I mean, Twitter, I think, is one of the worst inventions ever. Um, and I think it has made good leadership and forward planning almost impossible because they are too much time is spent on social media and, you know, worrying what's happening in the next well, five minutes. Well,
0: it's, it's shut down in Moscow as we speak. Jonathan, you'll be happy there. Um, <laughs> please, sir, um, ask, ask your question at the microphone. Thank you. Thank you very much. Question to both speakers, if I may. Your comparison between leaders who don't know when to step down and the theatrical comparison has been really awesome. I thank you very much for that. One case you don't seem to have covered is the leader who vacillates. And with respect, I speak of Sir Robert Menzies, who was able to get rid of the competent people who could have replaced him in Paul Haslark, perhaps Richard Casey, and leave a host of mediocre men behind. He then decided to resign at an appropriate age, at an appropriate time, but there's no-one left. Is there a theatrical comparison you can draw? John?
2: In Shakespeare. Uh, vac- vacillating. Uh, the, the one that springs closest to mind is probably one that you're not all that familiar with, which is Henry VI, who was the son of Henry V. Uh, Henry V uh, died very young, and uh, so his son became a regent and uh, as a child, and therefore was in the hands of a group of manipulative politicians who were using him for their own ends, and he grew up uh, weak, indecisive, vacillating, and uh, out of that uh, incompetence grew the the Wars of the Roses, which was the most devastating civil war in English history up till then. Uh, So that um, uh, prevarication, vacillation are terrible weaknesses in a leader and and, and leave you
0: open to manipulation. Implicit in the question also is the sort of principle of surround me with men that are fat, isn't it? That's right. You know, I don't want too many lean and hungry looks around me and as like in Casey and so on, are competent men who might threaten me. Maybe it is better to have, but then you reach generationally, don't you, the point where we end up with a McMahon government. So this is your succession point, I suppose. Well,
1: the same thing happened in a way after Howard as well. I mean, there weren't many, I mean, look at the leadership Revolving door that went through the Liberal Party after Howard um, was beaten. And he just held off all his successors and he never gave them a chance. I mean, if you want to have a succession plan, you have to allow the person to get in while you're in power. You have to actually hand over the power, not the defeat. Mm. Uh, and, and that's always the problem.
0: Mm. Uh, please.
3: Um, this question's for John. John, one of my favourite uh, women in Shakespearean writing is Kate from Taming of the Shrew. And I just wondered if you could speak about her a bit. You talked about the three layers of women, where yeah. they sat. I and I wonder where you put Kate.
2: Good, good example, thank you. It's one of Shakespeare's earliest plays and uh, is today very controversial because it's seen as being a, a wife-beating piece of misogyny, which in fact I think is, is far from being the case. Um, it's, for start, it's, it's a farce, it's a comedy, and therefore not to be taken, uh, you know, totally seriously. It's, it's meant to be funny. Uh, But, and it's a brilliantly constructed comedy too, full of wonderful characters and and situations. But uh, she's the victim of the marriage market. Her father is determined to marry her off to the richest suitor. So her father's all about who can, whoever has the most money can have my daughters. And uh, she rebels against that. She's a a rebel. She says, I won't play that patriarchal game. And uh, it takes a a like-minded roughneck like Petruchio to uh, come to some terms with her. It's a very stormy relationship and uh, sort of a boot camp of a, of a courtship, but they do reach an agreement by the end. She knows, living in 17th century England, that she has to subscribe to the social norms and agree to love, honor, and obey, uh, which she does, just as my mother did, only, you know, more recently. Uh, it isn't that long ago that women still uh, made that compact uh, so she agrees to do that, but we understand that they've reached an agreement where it will be a successful and agreeable partnership within the constraints of that society. I think that's what's important to learn from it. But it's far from being misogynistic. I think it's all about finding the ideal agreement and, and, and uh, compact with your partner, male or female or,
1: or whatever. Uh, please, sir. Oh, great session and good questions, Tom. Uh, my question is uh, about the role of speech writers. Are they the uh, modern uh, Shakespeare or writers uh, who we hear through the, the voices of the politicians? I mean, you talked about Tom, Wat- uh, Tom um, Don, Watson. Don, Watson. Don Watson, Don Watson, yeah, Watson, and and also Graham Freudenberg. Yeah. So when we give praise as we should do to to Gough Whitlam and and so on, are we really? Are they really the The words we hear, are they theirs or are they their speechwriters? Well, Well, yes, that's the great controversy about the Redfern speech. Um, Both Keating and Watson claim authorship of it. Uh, Graham Freudenberg, when he entered that debate, he very tactfully said, whoever gives the speech, it's theirs. So even though he wrote the speeches, whoever delivered it, as far as he was concerned, it was their speech. Um, But obviously he knew that... Everyone recognised that he had done it too. I mean,
0: do we know any... Who are the contemporary speechwriters for politicians? Well, maybe implicit in the question is that we deliberately don't know because uh, we don't want the reflected glory, do we? Don Watson was almost too prominent in Keating's eyes, wasn't he? Mm. You don't want to know who your speechwriter is any more than a sports figure wants uh, us to know who their ghostwriter is. I also think that anyone writing a speech for a
1: politician now would be so mindful of um you wouldn't want to take any risks at all and and part of the reason that we have these sort of anodyne sort of sanitized cliche speeches now is that no one wants to go out on a limb no one wants to risk offending anyone um, so i think you, and and this is a problem that satirists face nowadays too this notion of you're constantly self-censoring just in case you let off too many minds um, i used to think that the role of the satirist is to offend everybody, um, but I'm being increasingly told that it's you can only offend people that we don't like. <laughs> um, and uh, that, that becomes problematic too. So I, I, I'm sure that many contemporary speechwriters writers and politicians are continually just not saying anything um, for fear of saying something that shouldn't, shouldn't be said. Please.
3: I'm curious about British Parliament and when you look at it on the telly, everyone's crammed in. We're spacious, lots of space. So take this in any direction you want, but stage sets, has there ever been any play that you've put on, John, or know of where it was dismal because the architecture or the stage setting just didn't work? And I think about that also simply in relation to... Certainly in question time, you're constantly on film. So they take pictures of you asleep as a parliamentarian. So just the notion of filming stage set architecture, the architecture of the new Parliament House, compared to incidentally bumping into each other in the old Parliament House.
1: Well, Keating and I think Howard too, they preferred the old chamber. And they said, in retrospect... It probably would have been better to build new administrative offices and keep the chamber because it was acoustic and you could be heard and everyone was by... And, and there'd be even more now because there are more MPs. Um, but that that notion and, and the Commons, I mean, there are like 650 or something in there. And they're sitting like that. Um, must be very uncomfortable, but I think that's very important. And. The, park, the architecture of the old Parliament House allowed much more free interchange between the press gallery. I mean, they were all bumping into each other. The members all bumped into each other. You could actually get more communication between the opposition and the government. There was a more collegial sense. Uh, and in the new Parliament House, they're all separated, and the, you know, the press are over there, and the opposition's there, and the government's there, and they sit far apart in this sort of massive room. They're all miked constantly, uh, and they're filmed. And, and that's what
2: surprises me, that they aren't more aware
1: of the fact that they are on
2: national television all the time. Instead of so being seen asleep or not present at a maiden speech, But for it's like instance, Big Brother. It, it really shows you eventually up forget. The, 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 the lack of sheer theatrical mouse. I mean, if you're going to be on television, national television all the time, you'd think you'd put in an appearance at least and appear to be interested in what's going
0: on. It it might not be inadvertent on occasions, John. It might have been that when Mr Palmer was the member up up there in Queensland and he deliberately fell asleep as a means of signifying his contempt for the process. You know, like we sometimes we think that they're not aware that they're being watched, Mm. but actually it's all part of the theatre. Uh, To go to the question, can you think of, I mean, this question is fascinating, isn't it, about the architecture, because we know a set can change a play dramatically and you talk about Julius Caesar at length and how the entered to the, the Theatre of Pompey and how the Forum is represented in the Senate House change that production ineffably, don't, don't they?
2: Yes, uh, that's why I, I come back to Putin again, I suppose, and uh, his stage management, um, talk about his entrance into a, into a hall with the big golden doors and the uniforms and so on, highly theatrical and very effective. And I think uh, we are not actually uh, aware enough of um, the sort of impact we can make through Um, good stage management and good presentation. Well,
1: look at the architecture of Nuremberg. Yeah. I mean, those rallies were designed with an inch of their lives. Mm-hmm. That's on a
0: massive scale, whereas, yes. actually, the Shakespearean plays are often written to be performed in the halls of the Middle Temple or of the Globe and so on, and there's this implicit architecture, isn't there, in the script? And sometimes, in our modern productions, it actually creates problems for the performers. They're trapped in a world which actually doesn't suit the rhetorical task. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I won't
2: go into the great length, but the fact is that Shakespeare's plays were performed in broad daylight, in the open air, on an empty stage and everything was evoked by the language. So here we are in the forest of Arden, here we are at Burnham Wood, here we are uh, in Elsinore, and they told you where you were. And the audience stood there around this empty stage in the broad daylight and imagined they were in a moonlit forest or battlements in the dark or on a battlefield or somewhere. And the power of language and rhetoric did it all. And I find that in too many uh, modern productions, uh, those things are contradicted. Uh, there's too much technology, there's too much whiz-bang stuff going on to distract from the language, which I'm not saying that we should have everything on an empty stage, but it is a very powerful space and uh, can evoke far more, um, far more um, in, the imag- in the imagination of the audience than by showing them things too graphically. It makes it a bit more prosaic if you see everything done for you. And I think uh, the, the power of the imagination is the basis, certainly of all of Shakespeare's theatre, uh, and the language is what is what
0: carries it. Uh, you'll have the last question, sir, thank you. Thank you. Um,
2: thank you for a great session, by the way. Uh, John, you said Shakespeare is not fantasy. Do you think our modern politics is?
1: <laughs> uh. Well, I mean, one of the interesting thing about modern politics, and I think the, the fragmentation of society in, in general, We we want leaders, but people have to be prepared to be led. Um, It's a two-way thing. And I think the fragmentation and and the the ascendancy of individualism above all else means we risk losing the collective. And we can only be led if we're a collective, in a way. And I think that's the dilemma facing politicians at the moment, is that... I um,
2: I think we're losing to some of the the, the basic popular aspects of politics. I remember when I was a teenager going every weekend to Sydney's Domain to hear the Speaker's Corner and people up on soapboxes and up on ladders spruiking, talking, ranting about events of the day. And that was a kind of a democratic forum. Uh, Half of them were ratbags, of course, but they had the freedom to speak. And there was a a sign there of the people's voice being heard. Uh, Now that's all been channeled into, as you say, Twitter land or that's the best we can do. And there's not enough. Uh, if You talk about fantasy. I think, I think we're missing out on that basic popular forum uh, that, that that's been turned into something technological now, rather than simply human and uh, you know yeah. right there in your face. So to that extent, it's become fantastical, I would say.
0: We, we, we just before we conclude, I'll just and this is apropos of absolutely nothing. There's a wonderful sentence in John's book where he refers to Julius Caesar as being hale, hearty, fifty-two years old, and not knowing what's coming. And so you just sort of this gap between uh, reality fantasy as it's just been described, and the stage sometimes becomes so gossamer thin it almost seems to dissolve, doesn't it? And I'm not suggesting that a certain spin bowler and a yeah. leader of the um, leader of the proto-empire in any way similar, except that sometimes you can be 52 and not know if it's the Ides of March or not.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, a, a beautiful book, uh, this, the, the, the name of the book is Some Achieve Greatness. Instructive and inspiring. The name of Jonathan's book is *The Gospel According to Paul*. Amusing and inspiring, uh, and both are wonderfully written. Uh, they'll both be uh, signing over there uh, the books. If you would care to purchase them and have them signed, have a bit of a chat with either author. John will have to get on a plane shortly, so let's we'll, so get I'm in. I'm here all day. <laughs> so yeah, get, if you want, if you want John, get in early. Um, but could you join me in thanking Jonathan Biggins and John Bell? Thank you.